Today's pod is sponsored by Blinkist. I don't know about you, but there are so many books I want to read. My bedside table is literally overflowing. I actually had to buy a box to put under my bedside table for all the spillover books because I keep buying them and then I don't have time to read them. Well, Blinkist has found a way to solve that problem. Blinkist is a book summarizing subscription service that allows you to read or listen to the key insights from best-selling nonfiction books in around 15 minutes. You can read the summaries and highlight them right on your phone like I do, or if that's too much, you can just listen to them. And while you're listening, they say things like, hey, here's the key message from this chapter. Here's the takeaway. The whole thing is flippin' genius. I just finished Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg, who's a Stanford-based behavioral expert about how to make lasting changes to our day-to-day life. Like, I want to be someone who flosses, and I'll do it for maybe a week, and then I'm out. I have all the intention to do these new habits, and then I get drifty, and I don't follow through. BJ Fogg tells me what my problem is and how to fix it, and Blinkist breaks it down for me in 13 minutes. I found this particular title in Blinkist's 22 Powerful Ideas for 2022, which is the curated collection of top books to inspire us as we go into the new year. Like, even if I'd known to read that book on my own, which I didn't, I probably wouldn't have completed the book that tells me how to complete the tasks. But now I have the information I need to make the changes. I'm blown away. I'm so excited by this app. Blinkist has over 5,000 titles. And based on the profile you fill out when you sign up, they populate your account with books and episodes they think you might like. I can totally see why they have over 20 million users. The service rocks. I'm obsessed. And right now, Blinkist has a special offer for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash politicsgirl and get your seven-day free trial and 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. Blinkist is perfect for busy, curious people who just run out of time to read or even people who wish they could read but just aren't that into reading. You get key ideas from best-selling nonfiction in literally minutes, not hours. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash politicsgirl to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash politics girl. I promise you will not be disappointed. Do I have a New Year's resolution? No. I resolve to do my best to help save democracy in America. Does that count? <laughs> oh, that feels way harder than cutting down on carbs. Oh, why couldn't I have just said drink more water? And welcome to the Politics Girl Podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. There is nothing more sacred in America or any democracy than the right to vote. And the right to vote in our country is under attack. Republicans were not happy they lost the Senate and the presidency, so they tried to take their power back through the courts. When that didn't work, they tried to take their power back through insurrection. When that didn't work, instead of being introspective and trying to figure out how to sway voters back to their side, they doubled down on the lie that they hadn't actually lost in the first place. And they made that lie the groundwork to suppress their opponents' votes in the future. The argument that the Republicans keep making is they just want fair elections. After Trump blamed fraud for his 2020 loss, he and his allies went on to lose over 60 court cases trying to prove it. The Republicans didn't back down. They knew they couldn't prove what hadn't happened, but they continued to repeat the claim of fraud anyway, because the more people that said it, the more people that believed it. And the more people that believed it, the more laws they could pass to fix the problem that didn't actually exist, but served their intentions. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, as of October 4th, 2021, more than 425 new bills restricting voter access have been introduced in 49 states. And along with these voter restrictions, there is an ongoing issue of partisan gerrymandering, which has been dialed up to an 11 because this is a redistricting year. And after seeing how important election officials were to keeping Donald Trump from his goal of keeping the White House despite losing the election, there is also a brand new trend of states imposing criminal penalties on people either directly or indirectly involved with elections which voting experts are saying is a complete setup to deter people from engaging in the ordinary, legal, and often essential tasks necessary to facilitate voting. We're talking about things like the law in Georgia, which I'm sure you've heard about, that will now criminally charge someone for handing out water or snacks to someone waiting in line at the polls. But also things like the people in Iowa and Kansas facing criminal charges for returning ballots on behalf of voters who need assistance, like voters with disabilities, or election officials facing criminal prosecution if they're found to be encouraging voters to request mail-in ballots. 
It's just a never-ending onslaught of ridiculous new laws created by the Republicans with the sole purpose of deterring certain people from voting while making it easier for others. This attack on our democracy is coming from so many places, it's actually difficult to get your head around how insidious and far-reaching it is. But it's also an incredibly smart plan because democracy doesn't have to just dodge punches, it has to avoid ankle bites and blow darts and vampire bats. The attack is coming from all sides. And when that happens, it's harder to counter it because it's hard to track. Suffice it to say, for anyone paying attention, these new laws have nothing to do with securing our elections and everything to do with securing Republican power. To be clear, the Republican response to record voter turnout in 2020 is to make sure it never happens again. To unleash a tsunami of bogus election integrity laws at the state level that will restrict access to voters they don't want voting and throw out or overturn votes they don't want counting. In fact, for a powerful network of conservatives, voting restrictions are now considered the political life-or-death debate, with the fight eclipsing almost every other traditional Republican issue like abortion, gun rights, and tax cuts as a way to fire up their base. Mark Elias, democracy's super lawyer and voting rights expert, has been sounding an alarm for over a year, saying the United States is witnessing a slow-motion insurrection that has a far better chance of success than Trump's failed power grab last year. As Elias points out, there are zero Republicans in Congress who support voting rights. Zero. And the sooner we recognize and accept that the Republican Party is a party of voter suppression and elections aversion, the better chance we have to proceed with the steps necessary to save democracy. Which means Democrats must focus on protecting free and fair elections with at least as much intensity as the Republicans are plotting to undermine them. Now, voter fraud is not a news story. It's one that's been told by the GOP over decades in order to justify passing laws that make it harder for the people they don't want voting to vote. In Trump's hands, the story became the big lie. But it's really just that, a lie. Now, I'm not going to pretend our voting system is perfect because there are lots of changes we could be making that would make things more transparent and less likely to be questioned. But on the whole, there is absolutely no evidence of mass voter fraud in this country, and yet we find ourselves in the position where our long-established democratic experiment could fall to the endless repetition of a lie that serves no one but the people telling it. Knowing the Republicans are capitalizing on this fabricated idea of unfair elections to pass hundreds of laws that will allow them to make elections unfair, the Democrats have attempted to pass voter protections four times in the past year, but every time the Republican Senate has used the filibuster to refuse to take a vote. As Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock recently said after the Republicans voted yet again to even debate voting rights, if they have suggestions, I want to hear them. The American people deserve more than simply saying no. And while the Democrats have been busy doing other things like improving the economy, dealing with COVID, getting the infrastructure bill passed, and infighting about their various economic plans, Republicans have been just as busy at the state level passing every possible law to skew elections in their favor. So at the federal level, they refuse to even discuss voter protections. But at the state level, they are gutting them. In fact, many election experts have said that the new group of laws is the greatest assault on voting rights since Jim Crow. And you don't have to look too carefully to see that the laws are targeting the exact same people. And these are not laws for the states to use federalism to do what they think is best for their state, but rather a concentrated effort by a party to suppress votes that are not best for the party. It's not about fair elections. It's about winning elections. As Senator Ron Wyden pointed out, if Republicans were actually serious about protecting elections, they wouldn't keep blocking bills that would protect them. Even with all three houses of government, Democrats are in a precarious position. Between the ongoing lie that the election was stolen, the increasing voter suppression laws, and the current process of redistricting, the Democrats could easily lose control of the House without the Republican Party gaining a single new voter. Electoral votes and House districts are based on population. And as a result of last year's census, which is taken every 10 years, some states lose population and some states gain population. And because of that, all 50 states are required to redraw the boundaries of their House districts based on those new numbers. The problem is, the party that controls the state government are the ones who get to draw the district lines. So if your state is controlled by Republicans, they get to choose. And if your state is controlled by Democrats, they get to choose. And in some cases, like California, Colorado, Virginia, and Washington, an independent bipartisan commission redraws the maps to keep them fair and balanced. So, 
Along with the Republican bills to increase the power of the state legislatures to decide who gets to vote, and if you do get to vote, if your vote is counted, the GOP also plans to retain power through the redrawing of House districts using partisan gerrymandering. I want you to think of a checkerboard. It's a grid. It's even. Every square is the same size. Theoretically, that is how we should break up the states into districts. Fairly. Evenly. With no consideration of who lives where or who votes which way. Iowa does it like this. They use impartial, computer-generated maps that don't favor one party or candidate over another, and it pretty much comes out looking like a grid. Now picture a paint-by-numbers set of Van Gogh's Starry Night. It swirls onto circles with some little stars and then a big swath of sky. It's all over the place. That is closer to what our state districts look like, but at least it has a point. The swirly blobs are completing a preconceived grand picture. Partisan gerrymandering, however, is when you draw those paint-by-number lines willy-nilly, however you want to draw them, not with a bigger picture in mind, but with your specific interest in mind. I'm sure you've heard the expression, politicians picking their voters, rather than voters picking their politicians. That's partisan gerrymandering. Look at some of the districts of the leading voices in the Republican House. Look at Jim Jordan's district in Ohio, or Dan Crenshaw's district in Texas. Those districts look like a blindfolded child drew a duck in a moving car. They're all over the place. They're just like, I'll take these voters, but not these voters. Carve out that neighborhood. It's not going to be any good for us. I'm going to take this whole section of town, but stop right there. And then just give me this complex down by the lake. It's ridiculous. These guys couldn't win a fair election based on their policies or accomplishments. So they have won through sheer voter manipulation by cherry picking voters to ensure a Republican victory. And this is what the Republicans are looking to do all over the country. Take advantage of the fact that this is a redistricting year to draw these completely bizarre maps that favor them and lock out their opponents. The Republican Party has given up on reaching out to new voters. It's simply decided to retain its power through fear and hate, weaponized misinformation, and the rigging of the election system itself. In states that allow partisan gerrymandering, Republicans control 188 seats and Democrats only control 73. So even if Democrats wanted to partisan redistrict at the level the Republicans do, the numbers wouldn't add up in their favor. Dave Wasserman, an expert in redistricting, says the Republican Party will be able to win back the six seats they need to take back the House leadership in 2022 simply by redrawing the district lines in states they have control of so they are more favorable to them. This is why Republicans don't care if they look like hypocrites or behave like idiots. Numbers-wise, they simply need to keep Trump's base happy and use partisan gerrymandering and voter suppression, and they can't lose. It's a bad spot for Democrats, for democracy, and for anyone who believes in free and fair elections. Look no further than Florida, Texas, and Georgia, where Republicans have complete control of redistricting, and Republicans are more than likely to win back any number of seats. Again, not by reaching out to new voters or coming up with new policies to make people change their minds, but simply by nullifying Democratic votes, by drawing the district lines in a way to negate the Democratic voter. And I don't think I need to tell you that redrawing the district lines to make it impossible for you to lose or making it so hard for the opposing party to vote that you win is not the will of the people, but a process and protocol that one party uses to rig the election in their favor. And while people like Mark Elias and his team at the Elias Law Group can take on as many voter suppression cases as humanly possible, he's currently litigating 36 in 13 states, there's only so much he can do when it comes to gerrymandering. The Supreme Court has already ruled that while racial gerrymandering, or drawing lines specifically based around race, is technically unconstitutional, partisan gerrymandering, drawing lines specifically based around party, is more of a gray area. They've said... If people don't like candidates picking their voters rather than voters picking their candidates, they shouldn't bring it to the courts, but to the ballot box. So the highest court in the land has ruled that the only way to get a fair district is to win an election in an unfair district, which is a pretty big problem. As Derek Johnson, president and CEO of the NAACP says, we cannot out-organize voter suppression. We organized to put people in office to address the issue of voter suppression. We did not organize to let elected officials off the hook and force us to overcome these new hurdles. Voters did their job. Now we're asking elected officials to do their job and protect our rights to vote. Republicans understand what an uphill battle this is for Democrats, and they're capitalizing on it. 
It's like playing touch football while the opposing team is playing tackle. The rules say you can't do it, but the judges are like, just get up, shake it off, try and make it work. You know that meme of Obama with his hands in the air and he's looking around like, what the fuck? That's anyone who's been watching what the Republicans have been getting away with the past year without any federal laws to counter it. And anytime we talk about passing federal laws to counter this kind of anti-democratic behavior, Republicans go all over TV saying, why do we need new voting rights? The Voting Rights Act is still in place. What's the problem? Um, the problem is that the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in Shelby versus Holder in 2013. Yeah, it still exists. It just has no teeth. Like you can say, well, no one is stopping you from voting. You just have to take a day off work and drive four hours to a polling place and wait eight hours in line. But like no one's stopping you from voting. Aren't you though? When Democrats tried to rectify the problem and pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act to restore the Voting Rights Act back to how it was in 1965, the Republicans voted against it. Which means, among other things, that this current redistricting cycle is the first in more than 50 years where states with a long history of discrimination do not have to approve their voting maps with the federal government to make sure they aren't discriminatory. And voting rights advocates are screaming from the rafters that this absence of federal protections is going to have a devastating impact on the representation of communities of color. The Republicans are basically passing laws, erasing decades of hard-fought wins for disenfranchised groups, and passing new laws to prevent the changing American demographic from affecting their ideal power structure. Organically, things are changing, but the GOP is putting hundreds of laws in place to make sure that is not reflected in our voting. Allison Riggs, the executive director of Southern Coalition for Social Justice based in North Carolina, who's been deeply involved with redistricting and voting rights, says, what we are seeing is beyond our worst nightmare in terms of how bad these outcomes are for voters of color. I mean, from the day after the Shelby versus Holder decision came down, North Carolina has been busy passing bills to restrict voting rights. And now, North Carolina's GOP-controlled legislature has approved new maps for the U.S. House that will likely give white Republicans control of 11 out of 14 districts. Keep in mind, Donald Trump only won North Carolina with 49.9% of the vote. The Electoral College is winner-take-all, so it doesn't fully reflect the will of the voters nationally, but at the state level, the House districts should. In fact, 90% of North Carolina's population growth since the last census has been voters of color. So when they were redrawing those district lines, that change should have been reflected. But it's not. Black voters have been packed into urban areas that are already skewed blue. And the state's three largest heavily Democratic counties have been split into three different congressional districts in order to dilute the power of the communities of color and enhance the power of the white rural area. So the Republican legislature of North Carolina has all but nullified the Democratic changes that the census count was created to acknowledge. The only toss-up seat in North Carolina now is held by a popular black Democrat, G.K. Butterfield, who Republicans have personally targeted by adding as many white voters as possible to his eastern North Carolina district and removing as many black ones as possible, effectively changing the district from one Biden carried by nine points in 2020 to one that leans Democratic by only two points. The district had long been protected by the Voting Rights Act, but after the Supreme Court decision, what was once impossible is now possible, and the Republicans are taking full advantage. In fact, North Carolina's congressional, state Senate, and state House maps, which were all approved by the Republican legislature in November, have each received an F for partisan fairness by the Princeton Gerrymandering Project, which has said that all three maps were likely to decrease the number of districts where communities of color can elect their preferred candidate. And there is nothing anyone can do about it, because the Republican state legislature also passed a law to say that the Democratic governor isn't allowed to veto any new maps. You can go down a rabbit hole with everything the Republicans are doing in North Carolina, and I did. And it is heartbreaking and anti-democratic and morally and ethically wrong, but it is currently not against the law. And North Carolina is just one of many Southern Republican-controlled states participating in this behavior. Of course, extreme gerrymandering isn't just limited to the Southern states with their long history of discrimination. 
Wisconsin Republicans are currently trying to pass a congressional map that would give them 75% of the House seats in a state that went to Biden. Ohio Republicans recently introduced a congressional map that would give them 86% of the House seats in a state Trump only carried by 53%. And in order to do that, Ohio Republicans are completely ignoring a ballot initiative passed in 2018 that was designed specifically to make redistricting more fair. They're just flat out ignoring what the voters voted for to serve themselves. Republicans keep claiming they're drawing these new maps race blind, but that is a blatant lie. Take Texas, for example, where the Republican legislature just passed the new congressional and state maps that somehow increased the number of districts where white voters are the majority, despite the fact that white people only make up about 40% of Texas's population. And 95% of the population growth in the past decade came from communities of color. Again, the point of the census and the redrawing of the congressional maps every 10 years is to reflect the change in population and demographics, not to make it easier for those who have always had power to hang on to it. The Republicans are cheating. And they're not just doing it with map redistricting. They're doing it with an endless barrage of repressive voter laws designed specifically to keep undesirables from voting or Democratic votes from counting. Just to give you a taste, Republican representatives in Georgia just proposed closing six of seven polling sites in Lincoln County after the GOP took over the local election board and purged all the Democrats. The Georgia GOP also signed a bill giving the Republican-controlled General Assembly new powers over the State Board of Elections, which controls all the local counterparts, and the law is now being used to launch a review of the solidly Democratic Fulton County, home to most of Atlanta, which could lead to a complete state takeover by Republicans. The legislature also passed measures allowing local officials to remove Democrats from election boards in six other counties. In Wisconsin, the Republicans are trying to cut the drop boxes in Milwaukee, the largest city in the state, to a total of one. One drop box for over half a million people. What could go wrong? In Michigan, the GOP has focused on the state's county board of canvassers. This little-known committee powers were briefly in the spotlight in November 2020 when Trump got two of the Republican members of that board to vote to block the certification of the election in Wayne County home to the Democratic stronghold of Detroit that had gone to Biden and not to him. In Nevada, where there were multiple lawsuits looking to overturn Biden's victory, one of them was filed by a man named Jim Marchand, who is now running to be Secretary of State because the current Republican Secretary of State said there wasn't fraud in the election, and he disagrees. Remember, the Secretary of State is who certifies the elections, so if Jim Marchand wins, he'll just choose who won the election in Nevada. And I'm pretty sure that that person will not be a Democrat. The same thing is happening in Georgia, where Jody Heiss, who voted against certifying Biden's Electoral College victory on January 6th, is running against the current Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, who rejected Trump's pleas to find those votes to declare him the winner in 2020. Jody has made it very clear that she would have made a different choice. And that is terrifying. Because if she wins, she will have the power to choose whoever she wants. To paraphrase Denise Freeman, an activist and former Lincoln County, Georgia school board member, none of this is about the convenience for the citizens or the safety of the vote. This is all about control. This is about the good old boys wanting to do what they've always done, which is retain power. It's endless. Just hundreds and hundreds of new laws that absolutely skew our entire election system towards one minority-supported party in the most shamelessly and undemocratic way. Well, that's a lot to take in. So let's take a little palate cleanser away from the death of American democracy to honor the life of the legend that was Betty White. Quite frankly, loving Betty White might be the one thing America has left to agree on. She left a great legacy to the entertainment industry, to animal causes, and to my own little family's life through her role as Rose Nyland in the 80s sitcom Golden Girls. I introduced my son to Golden Girls when he was around nine years old. And yes, I know it's a bit risque, but he's always been an old soul and he likes real. He never really took to traditional kid actor shows. It was like he knew they were faking it and he didn't connect. However, he became obsessed with the Golden Girls almost immediately. He's almost 14 now and he's watched the entire series at least three times. I think the thing about the Golden Girls is that they allowed him to explore adult topics from a place of safety and friendship. 
He learned about how expensive it is to live and how roommates are sometimes essential. He learned how friendship is built on trust and how women talk about men when they aren't there and how men's behavior affects women. He learned the importance of standing up for yourself, about having your friends back, and about how you can fight and then get over it. He even learned that women can be sexual beings unto themselves and that is nothing to be ashamed of. The thing is, sharing that show with him was so important to me because when he was younger, I wasn't sure I'd be around to do stuff like that. I was sick and I was told I wouldn't live past his third birthday. So the best I thought I could do was to write letters to him in a blog I called, In Case I'm Gone. The letters gave me a way to address the parenting I didn't think I'd be around to do, and they gave me a way to leave a part of me that was real, so I didn't just become some sainted mother in a frame. So sitting and watching the Golden Girls with him allowed me all those moments I wasn't sure I'd ever have, and now was lucky enough to share. I mean, I know he won't always be mine, that he'll become his own man and won't need me like he once did, but for his formational years, I hope I made an impression. I so badly want him to move beyond the toxic patriarchy we all grew up in that's damaging both men and women. The culture that justifies locker room talk and gave us monsters like Jeffrey Epstein and Donald Trump. A culture that teaches teenage girls how to avoid getting raped, but doesn't teach boys not to rape. I didn't want my son to be part of that. I wanted him to respect women, not because he was told to, but because he really did. I wanted him in co-ed schools because I wanted him to see women as equals, as competition, and not just as weekend entertainment. At home, I tried to show him a mother standing up for herself and following her dreams rather than just serving the family's dreams. And I actively tried to expose him to media that showed him, even incidentally, the female point of view. And that is how we ended up with the Golden Girls. The thing is, that show is freaking amazing. <laughs> The cast is amazing, the writing is incredible, and it's somehow both charmingly dated and completely relevant. There was one episode where Rose goes to the dentist, and while she's out for her procedure, the dentist violates her, and she wakes up and she recognizes what's happening, and he tries to gaslight her and tell her it didn't happen, and she goes home feeling bad about herself, and eventually she tells her friends who help her stand up to the man who violated her. And I remember watching that episode with my son and talking about it afterwards, about respecting people's bodies, about how some men behave, and about how that is never okay. He was probably 10, but he got it. And he got it from a female perspective, not his own. So even though my little guy is now a hulking teenager who loves video games and golf and working out every day, he still goes back to the Golden Girls for laughs and comfort and compassion. When my husband's 97-year-old grandmother was here over Christmas, he put on the show to watch with her and they both just sat there chuckling. The thing is, I think we're entering a new age for men. And if you're not afraid of it, it's actually an incredibly exciting time. An age where this traditionally masculine way of transactionally moving through the world at the expense of others is ending. And we're moving on to a more relational way of dealing with each other and the world. And for those of us that go there, I believe it'll be a far better place. Yes, there will always be those who push back with hideous things like AlphaCon and whatever Joe Rogan is doing. Men who think women owe them, who are uncomfortable with anyone who doesn't fit into their traditional box, and who take and take and take at the expense of everyone, including the planet. But for the most part, I think that idea is waning because it clearly doesn't serve us anymore. So my son might be some six foot tall natural leader who looks like your classic all-American boy, but he is also kind and emotionally intelligent and not afraid of his feelings. He's funny and challenging and deeply respectful of others. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the new alpha. And he got that from me and from his father and from the Golden Girls. Rest in peace, Betty. Thank you for being a friend and for helping me teach my son how to be a man. The Politics Girl podcast is sponsored by Athletic Greens. And I have to say, so far I'm really impressed. Going into it, I'd heard nothing but rave reviews, but you have to try these things for yourself. So my husband, who's one of those wake up at 5.30 to work out, climb mountain types, and me with my compromised health, who's more of an indoor cat, both started it at the same time. And I have to say, I've already noticed a difference. I'm one of those people who doesn't get optimal nutrition. I try to feed my family properly, but I end up just grazing myself and I often skip meals altogether. What I've noticed is starting my day with one scoop of athletic greens and water on an empty stomach is that it sort of launches me into my day. Its special blend of ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, anti-aging, sleep, all the things. It's basically an all-in-one nutritional insurance for your body. The biggest difference I've noticed so far is that I'm no longer crashing around 4 p.m. and getting another coffee. I actually don't need it anymore. How cool is that? 
Athletic Greens is a once daily micro habit that uses the best products and is based on the latest science. In fact, their current formula is on its 53rd iteration because they're constantly updating it as the science advances. And with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no GMOs, no chemicals or artificial anything, it really seems to be working. So I'll keep you updated. But if you want to join me on my journey to better gut health and more energy and an optimized immune system, you can go to athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl and Athletic Greens will give you one free year of immune supporting vitamin D, great for the winter, and five free travel packs with your first purchase. That's athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl to get the ultimate in daily nutrition. So far, I'm a massive fan. Massive. And we're back. And talking the Republican shameless grab for power and how fucked American democracy is if we don't do something about it and fast. Take Texas, who just passed the incredibly restrictive Senate Bill 1, or SB 1, the bill where the Democrats actually left the state for a time to call attention to how undemocratic and restrictive these laws were going to be. Governor Abbott ended up signing that bill into law in September. And the bill so clearly harms voters of color and voters with disabilities that almost immediately after he finished signing, five separate lawsuits, including two federal lawsuits, were filed almost immediately. While SB1 claims to make some changes that will expand voter access, like increasing voting hours in smaller, mostly Republican counties, the new law is really just a wildly restrictive group of provisions on how and when voters can cast ballots. It targets voting initiatives used by places like Harris County, the state's biggest district and Democratic stronghold, by banning overnight voting, banning early voting, and banning drive through voting, which were all incredibly popular things with people of color in the last election. The new law makes it even more difficult to qualify for vote by mail. It gives new powers to outside watchers and partisan election officials to essentially intimidate and harass voters at the polls. And it makes it a federal crime for local election officials to distribute mail-in ballot applications. This particular provision comes with jail time of up to two years and $10,000 in fines for the crime of giving a voter a mail-in ballot application that wasn't specifically asked for. So a potential voter says to an election official, hey, what happens if I'm out of town on election day? The election official can't say, oh, well, you could mail your ballot in. Would you like an application? Nope. Thanks to SB1, that would get them thrown in jail. So I guess they're just supposed to, I don't know, sit there frozen until the potential voter leaves because their laws make no sense. The fact is, there are so many new laws around the country being passed around what election officials can and cannot do that in September, Democratic super lawyer Bob Bauer and Republican super lawyer Ben Ginsburg joined forces to launch the Election Official Legal Defense Network to help election officials who have been or who will be personally targeted for just doing their jobs and give them access to pro bono lawyers who will give them legal advice and assistance. These two top litigators released a statement saying, Election officials are coming under an unprecedented attack. Not only are they being harassed and targeted after the last election with death threats and personal attacks, but the states are now attempting to criminalize the very aspects of their job. Bauer and Ginsburg, who have been partisan opponents for years, came together because they said, we share a grave concern about these attacks on our public servants. We need lawyers to protect election official workers from intimidation of suggested criminal culpability for just doing their jobs, and we need lawyers to stop them from being physically threatened. Law enforcement hasn't shown themselves to be particularly interested in helping them, so these two powerful lawyers, along with a bipartisan board of advisors, created a whole new group just to protect those who protect our elections. Two members of this advisory board are Georgia Secretary of State, Republican Brad Raffensperger, who was forced to go into hiding after he refused to call the election for Trump, and Michigan Secretary of State, Democrat Jocelyn Benson, who had armed protesters outside of her house for months, threatening to kill her if she didn't overturn Biden's win. Benson says, even a year after the 2020 election, the intimidation isn't slowing down. If anything, it's just beginning. Benson says, We've seen how the big lie, this idea that last year's election was anything other than an accurate and secure reflection of the will of the people, has become the foundation, not just for hundreds of laws that have made it harder to vote, but for all the new laws that allow partisan officials to interfere with the professional administration of the elections. She recognizes that the goal is to stoke fear and intimidate election professionals in order to keep them from doing their job of making sure every vote is counted and every voice is heard. 
And it's not just the election official legal defense network that's pushing back. In March, President Biden signed an executive order to promote expanded voting access nationwide. He nominated two civil rights leaders, Kristen Clark and Vanita Gupta, to serve in high-ranking positions at the Justice Department to protect our election integrity. In June, Clark and Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that the DOJ was suing the state of Georgia over a new law that was clearly enacted with the purpose of denying the rights of black Georgians to cast their ballots. And they recently did the same with SB1 in Texas. Former Obama AG Eric Holder founded the National Democratic Redistricting Committee back in 2017 to challenge Republican gerrymandering efforts. Indivisible and All on the Line are fighting in the states, and multiple civil rights and voting groups, including the ACLU and Mark Elias's law firm, are filing legal challenges all over the country. As Eric Holder said, the American experiment is at risk. These challenges to American democracy, the insurrection, the gerrymandering, the voter suppression, the attacks on the professional election officials, all of this puts our democracy at risk in a way that we have not seen since the Civil War. This is how serious it is. And Holder's not wrong. The Republicans are clearly all in for taking power, even if that means abandoning democracy to do it. Stephen Levitsky, a Harvard political scientist and co-author of the book How Democracies Die, says that it is not clear the Republican Party is willing to accept defeat anymore because the party itself has become an anti-democratic force and they're consolidating their efforts. Many prominent conservative groups are now focusing almost entirely on the quote-unquote election integrity message because it has shown to have so much power to engage their base. The anti-abortion rights group, the Susan B. Anthony List, has partnered with another conservative group to fund the Election Transparency Initiative. FreedomWorks, a group that was formed to push for smaller government, has initiated a multi-million dollar fund calling for tighter state voting laws. Jessica Anderson, the executive director of Heritage Action, an influential far-right conservative Christian advocacy group, calls this an all-hands-on-deck moment for the conservative movement and has formed an entirely new division of the Heritage Foundation to focus solely on changing state voting laws. And finally, the right-wing powerhouse and famous leader of the Federalist Society, Leonard Leo, who gave us the conservative focus on the federal courts and the person who picked all of Trump's Supreme Court justices, giving us the today's far-right court, has created his own Honest Elections Project to push for voting restrictions and coordinate the GOP effort to monitor the vote. Jessica Anderson says, voter distrust is at an all-time high, and we've heard the battle cry from the conservative grassroots, and they are urging us to pick this fight. But why are they urging you to pick this fight, Jessica? Why is voter distrust at such an all-time high? Is it because Republicans have been telling everyone who will listen for over a year that the election was stolen, despite the fact that you have absolutely and fundamentally failed to prove that to be true? Did you just create a self-fulfilling prophecy that you are now seeking to capitalize on? I think you are. The idea that Democrats are somehow trying to steal elections is the ultimate in reverse psychology. Stringent voting regulations have been a part of the conservative playbook for years because conventional wisdom was that Republicans do better when less people vote and Democrats do better when the turnout is higher. This idea translated to the ongoing GOP effort to tighten voter identification laws and require more frequent voter roll purges because they felt the less people that could vote, the better chances they had at winning. Look no further than Stacey Abrams' governorship loss to Brian Kemp in 2018. As Secretary of State, the person in charge of the election, Brian Kemp purged over 600,000 voters from the rolls and then won the election by just over 50,000 votes. So the guy running was also in charge of election integrity, and he got to choose who could vote and who didn't. And it worked out great for him. And they would like to just keep doing that, thank you very much. Recently, it even seems like the idea of Democrats voting at all is a problem for Republicans. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul just tweeted, how to steal an election, colon, seed an area heavy with potential Democratic voters with as many absentee ballots as possible, convince potential voters to complete them in a legally valid way, and then harvest and count the results. As Fred Wellman of the Lincoln Project responded to that tweet, you literally just described the legal voting method. That's not stealing an election. That's called letting Americans vote. But in Rand's, and apparently many Republicans' opinion, giving legal voters ballots, explaining how to properly fill them out, and then dropping them off and counting those votes is somehow cheating. As Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut said, Rand is a smart guy. 
This tweet wasn't a mistake. He didn't take it down when it got lots of attention. Mainstream national Republicans are now openly advocating for an end to democracy. They don't support voting if voting elects anyone other than them. So while Republicans may say that voter protection laws are just Democrats trying to tilt the election in their favor, that is exactly what they are doing and continue to do every day. As South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham said, if we don't do something about voting by mail, we're going to lose the ability to elect a Republican in this country. So basically, it's not fair. If everyone can vote, we'll never win, is now the official position and call to arms of the Republican Party. Which is why it's essential, as the brilliant Stacey Abrams says, that we use all the tools available to us to protect our voting rights at the federal level. How do we do that? There are two bills in front of Congress right now the Freedom to Vote Act, and the John Lewis Voters Advancement Act. As Abrams said, we have to think about these two bills in front of Congress in tandem. The Freedom to Vote Act is about setting a minimum standard across the country for how we access voting, how we protect our election workers, and how we push back against the subversion of our democracy. The Freedom to Vote Act expands access to the ballot for millions of Americans, bans partisan gerrymandering, cracks down on dark money in politics, and adds new provisions that protects nonpartisan election officials from partisan interference. The Freedom to Vote Act would preserve many of the major provisions from the For the People Act, which Republicans outrightly rejected earlier this year, like automatic and same-day voter registration, two weeks of early voting, making an election day a national holiday, ensuring that all voters can request mail-in ballots and have reasonable access to drop boxes. To win the support of senators like Joe Manchin, the bill also sets new standards for voter ID and is more specific about how states can go about removing voters from the rolls. The John Lewis Advancement Act restores what was lost in the Voters' Rights Act when the Supreme Court gutted it in 2013. The legislation would prevent legal changes to voting rules that would discriminate on the basis of race or ethnicity and would also restore voters' ability to challenge any discriminatory laws in court. Because the sad reality is, no matter what we're told, race discrimination in America continues to exist. In fact, according to the director of the voting rights and election programs at the Center for Justice and NYU Law, despite record voter turnout in the last election across all racial groups, 71% of white voters cast ballots compared to only 58% of voters of other races. And they point out that that gap will only continue to get worse if these new restrictive state laws are allowed to stand. So while the Freedom to Vote Act is designed to offset the laws that are being put into effect across the country right now, the John Lewis Advancement Act will make it so new bills have to be pre-cleared by the Justice Department before they go into effect. As Stacey Abrams says, one bill is to mitigate bad laws that have already been passed, and one is to stop new bad laws before they are passed. Now, for those of you saying, okay, great, so pass them, what's the holdup? The holdup is the Senate filibuster. The filibuster is an old-school parliamentary procedure implemented in the early 1800s that was used to prevent a bill from being brought to a vote. It's something that's been deeply corrupted by the modern U.S. Senate. One of the biggest misconceptions of the filibuster is that it promotes bipartisanship, which maybe in another age it might have. But in our day of modern polarized politics, it does the exact opposite because it gives the party out of power the means and the motive and the opportunity to block the party in power from getting anything done. The filibuster requires that the majority party, in this case the Democrats, get a certain amount of votes, 10, from the minority party, the Republicans, to pass any bills. But in our current world of politics, that is all but impossible. Adam Gentleson, the deputy chief of staff to the late Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, reminds us that in Federalist Paper 22, Alexander Hamilton wrote against the idea of requiring a supermajority, like the 60-vote filibuster requires, because it would provide an irresistible temptation for the party that is out of power to make the party in power look bad, which is exactly what keeps happening. This is why Democrats promise things but can't get them done. It's the reason why the majority of the country wants common sense gun legislation, but we can't have it. It's why pretty much we all agree that we need a raise in the minimum wage, but the Senate can't get it passed. It's the reason why Biden's wildly popular Build Back Better bill with its paid family leave and expanded Medicare and childhood tax credits is currently dead in the Senate. Not because the people aren't behind these pieces of legislation, but because the Republicans don't want to give Democrats the win. 
America's founders contemplated and rejected the idea of requiring a supermajority for this very reason. The Senate, like the House, was supposed to pass legislation with a simple majority. The House would debate and pass a bill and send it to the Senate. The Senate would debate and pass the bill and send it to the president. The president would sign or veto the bill. All three branches have the opportunity to stop the legislation if the majority disagrees, and the judiciary was there to act as a check on the laws themselves. That is how it's supposed to work. That is how Congress was set up to function. So right now, we need these two deeply important voter rights bills passed. But without 10 Republican senators signing on, the bill is dead on arrival, which is exactly what happened with the voting rights four times already this year. But in this case, the majority party does have another option. They can abolish or suspend the filibuster with a simple majority vote and pass voter protections without requiring a single Republican to vote with them, which, if they all choose to vote together, they could do. Senators, especially Democratic senator holdouts like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, who have been very adamant about not touching the filibuster, are now faced with a choice. They can see what the Republicans are doing around the country. They have negotiated for voter rights in good faith multiple times, only to have their efforts thrown back in their faces. And they can see that they will be out of power in less than a year if they don't stand up against the Republican gerrymandering and suppression. The question is, do they... Or do two Republican senators care enough about democracy to, at the very least, carve out the filibuster in order to protect our vote? Stacey Abrams says it is essential the senators understand the urgency of the moment, that they shouldn't focus on the idea of breaking tradition, but on protecting the fundamentals of our nation. Abrams is adamant that this isn't about partisanship, it's about patriotism. It's about making sure American citizens have the ability to participate in our elections, no matter who they choose when they enter the voting booth, and that their votes are actually counted by those who are responsible. It's about protecting the foundations of our democracy and not allowing those who would erase our voices to achieve their political end. Even President Biden, an old-school institutionalist, has said he would be willing to carve out the filibuster for voting rights since all other options to negotiate with the Republicans have failed. He allowed his Build Back Better bill to be put aside to bring voting rights to the forefront of Congress's attention. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has given the Republicans every opportunity to work with the Democrats on a compromise bill and has allowed senators like Sinema and Manchin to see the writing on the wall. As Schumer says... The Republicans have shown us they are not willing to negotiate in good faith on the fundamental issues of protecting our democracy. We all know that the right to vote shouldn't depend on what state you live in, what color you happen to be, or what party you tend to vote for. Republicans like Ted Cruz say ridiculous things like, the Democrats think America would be better off if more murderers and rapists and child molesters could vote. I mean, could that be any more transparently fear-mongering? Expanding the window to mail in your ballot or having a closer polling place hardly encourages the rapists of America to vote. And considering today's Republican Party, I'm pretty sure the rapists and child molesters of America would see themselves better reflected in the Republican Party. In normal times, with a normal opposition party, there would be no reason for the Republicans not to support such common sense measures to protect our vote. But this is not normal times, and this is not a normal opposition party. So far, not a single GOP senator has signed on for a single voter protection. As David Frum, the senior editor at The Atlantic and former speechwriter for George W. Bush said, if conservatives become convinced that they cannot win democratically, they will not abandon conservatism. They will reject democracy. And that is exactly what's happening. By rolling back voting rights everywhere, using mass voter suppression and state legislatures to turn election to their advantage, Republicans have shown they are ready and willing to reject the American experiment for their own version of the American dream where they, and only they, are in power. As Hillary Clinton said, the Republicans of today want to be able to win even if they lose. And without voter protections, that is exactly what will happen. The Republicans will use their newly gerrymandered maps to entrench their own power and take the House in October, and once they've taken the House, the horse, as they say, is out of the barn. Time is running out for Democrats and any Republican senator who still believes in American democracy to pass these voter protection bills. They can preserve the filibuster or they can protect democracy, but it is increasingly clear they cannot do both. We have created a system in which Republican politicians don't even have to pretend to care about the people anymore. They win no matter what they do. 
They can literally be the worst people in the world. Pedophiles, sexual assault enablers, insider traders, incompetent, dangerous, compromised self-dealers. But you stick them in a gerrymandered, voter-suppressed, safe red district, and they can literally take a last-minute beach vacation to Cancun while children in their state freeze to death because of their own policy choices and not even consider losing the next election. That is not a functioning democracy. That is a glaring problem that needs to be addressed. The Republicans and the dark-moneyed powers that fund them have made a calculated decision to hold back the country's evolution for the success of a select few. They are all too aware that the majority of Americans are done with the old way of doing things, of shunning people who are different, of allowing white men with means to hold all the power and keep everyone else out of the room where it happens. They understand that most of us want to see an end to money in politics and lying for profit. They know that the majority of the population strongly favor gun legislation and better education and affordable health care. They understand only a tiny group of people actually believe the government should get to decide what we do with our bodies. And I think they even know that saving the planet is not only the right thing to do, but could be a goldmine for new industry. But they are so deeply beholden to their donors, to their big moneyed groups that have kept them alive so long after they ran out of ideas. They need the evangelicals. They need the racists. They need the oil and gas industry and the corrupt self-serving billionaires. They need the fear and the anger and the hate to keep them afloat because it's all they have left. If you can't win on what you plan to do, then you need to lie about what your opponent plans to do. And you can only spin those lies so far without the big checks. And when you take the big checks, you owe the big favors. The Republican Party is caught in a web they spun for themselves, and they need to be defeated so they can be freed. Any reasonable GOP politician has left the party or been shunned. Anyone decent has abandoned the web. There is no room left for anyone with scruples or morality. The only people comfortable with what they've become are the spiders themselves. The people who stand for nothing and will do or say anything for their own retained power. The party doesn't even have an official platform anymore. Republicans know they have held outsized power with the minority for too long. That they're just limping along, fueled by grievance and racism and victimization. They know the country is at a tipping point. And if they don't do something, progress and their own demise is inevitable. So they've put all their chips into retaining power. Democracy no longer serves them, so they no longer serve democracy. And those who would let it happen won't know until it's too late how much they've given up. As Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock said, the most powerful words ever uttered in a democracy are, the people have spoken. And we need to do everything we can to make sure the people are heard. So that's it for this week. Support those standing up for democracy and voters' rights around the country. Call your senator to support the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voters Advancement Act. And know that we are starting this year with the fight of our lives. The future of our country is literally on the line, and you have to decide if you're going to stand up for it or not. I certainly am, and I hope you'll join me. Now go out and make the world a better place. Thank you so much for caring enough about democracy to spend this time with me. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.